This episode of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce is brought to you by Lakeland Zombie Fest Terminal V. Thousands of thousands of zombie enthusiasts are already planning their zombie costumes and apocalypse survivor gear. This year's Zombie Fest 2016 will include local bands and entertainers along with how-to and discussion panels. There will be several costume contests and cosplayers. Zombie Fest always has an eclectic variety of vendors serving food and sharing their merchandise. And don't forget also, there's tons of stuff for the kids. There's bounce houses, there's fun areas for the kids, there's face painting. Also, don't forget about the scare houses and the scare zones. Also, Scott Finster of Sci-Fi's Face Off fame will be there live at the show doing zombie makeup effects. And he's also been on the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce multiple times. You definitely want to check it out. You're definitely going to want to go to Lakeland Zombie Fest. It's going to be from 2 p.m. till midnight at the Sun and Fun here in Lakeland. So go check them out. And don't forget to tell them that the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce sent you. Hello, internets. My name is Johnny Womack. Of course, I have my main man, my partner in crime, my broadcast partner for today's episode of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce. We've got Deuce. What's going on, man? Hey, man. we got a, a quick little thing uh, you want to talk about real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to throw this out there for a good friend, Michael Carey. Uh, just so you guys know, it's coming up right around the corner in beautiful Bartow, just outside of Lakeland and just under an hour away from Tampa. It's going to be October 29th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And it's Main Street Comics and Memorabilia present the Halloween comic fest block party uh they're gonna have costume contests prizes free comics while supplies last there's gonna be trick-or-treating for the kids with entertainment by dj jader also our good friend michael carey art's gonna be there and our boy jb designs is gonna be there yep so they're gonna have a lot of cool art going on for sale so come on out and see them in downtown bartow at main street comics and memorabilia october 29th from 10 to 4 you're definitely going to want to hang out and have fun with them and speaking of hanging out and having fun, I think it's time for the damn do salute. Yes, every episode of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Do starts off with a good old do salute. Yes, sir. Ah, uh, that's what I'm talking good about. Good times. Cheers, Deuce. Cheers, brother. Cheers. Cheers to those at home drinking. And if you're drinking your water, your soda, your Lipton iced tea, it's okay as well. As we said last time, the happy hour, uh, the Deuce salute is actually a frame of mind. It is how you it is. think. It is how you so, think. And it is from the soul. So. Is it like Margaritaville? It's just a it's a state yeah, of mind? It's yeah. a state of mind. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we'd love to have friends with us. And, we do. And uh, we have an awesome event coming up um, on November 11th. Uh, it is called Free Play Florida. And it's going to be at the beautiful Double Tree by Hilton. It's yep. going to be awesome. And uh, we're really excited about that. It's one of the best conventions you'll see all year especially it's one of our personal highlights it's our year. favorite one yeah. we look we actually mark on the calendar every year we're really excited and, and I, the good news is i will actually be there on the saturday so you guys can check that out deuce will be there all three days and uh but come come check out the happy hour and check out all the amazing events yeah. we're also going to have um the amazing uh creator uh art designer of rampage yeah, uh, um, I don't know if you get know this guy. His name is Sir Brian Colon. Uh, we actually had him on uh, another episode before. Uh, yes, we did with Brian Jones, and uh, it's awesome. Really good dude. Uh, welcome back to the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce, sir. Thank you. It's great to be back. Awesome. And 
to your left on our perspective, because uh, they're doing this on Skype, uh, we have first time to the show. Yes. We have the former editor-in-chief of Tips and Tricks magazine, Chris Bieniek. Welcome to the uh, happy hour with Johnny Deuce, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're super excited. Yeah. Um, well, we're so excited to have you guys with us and want to say thank you and welcome back again. And uh, I, I guess, uh, Chris, we're actually going to start off tonight with you. Um, how was it working with Tips and Tricks magazine? Pass. Fast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, how was it? It was the best job I'll ever have, probably. I mean, I, I got to work on every every one of the 150 issues of the magazine plus uh, a spin-off magazine that we called the tips and tricks code book and uh we got to s- go to all the trade shows we got to see every game that was coming out before it was out we got to dig deep into the games looking for secrets and cheat codes and easter eggs and we got to meet a lot of a lot of people like brian who make the games and uh you know, I wouldn't. I missed it. I, I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. Now, for our our younger audience that's listening out there, what Tips and Tricks Magazine was is kind of like GameFacts.com is now. Basically, it was a magazine, and you could get it, you know, at your EB Games or your GameStop, or you could even get it at the grocery store, Seven Eleven, or your newsstand. Babbages, Babbages, wherever. Yeah. wherever. I mean, we're going yeah. old school here. Yeah, but, really old school. Yeah, but you would go. Yeah, there and, used to be these things called magazines. Yeah. Yeah. That were actually printed on paper. But it, <laughs> people actually cared about what was in them. Well, and that's the thing for our younger audience who has only been alive during the internet era. We had no internet. So right. your only way to figure out like, oh my God, what is the cheat code on this or what's the God mode on this game or how do I get past this part was to use tips and tricks. Like that was your only option. I mean, there was no except for maybe that Nintendo one eight hundred number or maybe a couple Nintendo other power the stuff. Nintendo power number, yeah. the one from the wizard yeah. that they called. Um like there was really very few outlets, unlike now where it's like, oh I'm stuck on this part. I'll go on the internet and look it up. Like tips and tricks was for lack of a better word, kind of your video game savior it in was. that department. Well it was cool because like it started off correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but you guys started off around the PS one era, is that correct? No, it was before that. We oh, the bef- first issue I think was ninety four. Yeah. Okay, because um, PS four or PS one came out um, in ninety five. So, uh, so it was right before then, I guess, right before the launch in America. So you guys were yeah, we were we were doing Super NES, Genesis, sweet three DO, nice. In, oh yeah, in those I, first issues. As the uh, as the kid here, I got to jump in. I met Chris through his first game. He was editor at uh, Video Games Magazine, which was from the same uh, publishing group, uh, I believe, but it was prior to Tips and Tricks. And as the name implies, it was the magazine for video games. And when did that start? Uh, Video Games started, I believe, in 88. I started working for them in 89. Uh, Are you guys still getting me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still getting you, Chris. Yeah, video games started in 88. I started writing for them in 89. Uh, I started as a full-time in-house employee. And, and I think Tips and Tricks started up in 94. Originally, oh. Tips and Tricks was just a, a quarterly spinoff of video games that compiled information that had been previously printed in video games. 
Uh, but it became more popular and outlasted video games by quite some time. In fact, we were still doing a cheat code magazine in 2011. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, long after Game Facts came around, you know, we, we were kind of happily coexisting with them for, for a good majority of that 15-year run we had on Tips and Tricks. Well, how did it, my question for you is, like, how did it change once the, like, the 3D era came out? Like, you had your, because you, you were entering right before, because like you said, it was, like, right on the cusp. Like, you guys uh, had done, like, the, the Super Nintendo and all that, but you also, once the 95 and 96 era hit, obviously that was the introduction of the PS1 and the Nintendo 64. Like, what was that t- kind of world for you when, that ha- when, that, when you were in the industry? It was It was amazing, because for the first time, we could, actually take a game put it in the cd-rom drive of our computer and look at the files we could examine the data for passwords button commands uh you know hidden video files any of that stuff uh, without having to use any special tools or having to you know dump eproms or any of that kind of stuff uh it sort of brought in a whole new era of finding and releasing cheat codes uh and it was before they, you know, started to slow down putting those things in. Right. So, like, for me, it's it's interesting, too, because, like, Deuce, Deuce and I have been playing games. You know, I think we've told our story before, but we've been playing games since, essentially since the Atari 2600 era. And that was kind of like our first foray into video games. And, of course, uh, I, I had a friend of mine that had a Commodore 64, you know, so I got to check that out a little bit and... And so, and then of course the NES was my first system. Well, you've been playing, I guess, games for. We talked to Ryan last time about this. And so, what about you, Chris? Like, what was your your first introduction into gaming? Like, what was your first memory of video games? Probably, my dad had a friend who owned a Magnavox Odyssey. Oh, uh, I and borrowed it from him for a couple of weeks. Probably around 1973, I want to say. Um, my dad really brought me into a lot of this stuff. He was uh, uh, an electronics technician at the University of Illinois, and he was always interested in computers. He sort of, we would go to visit him uh, on the campus, and he would uh, bring us down to the basement and showed us this. Uh, they had these networked terminals. It was this Play-Doh computer system uh, that people were writing games for, you know, in the seventies, they, they were mostly educational games, but there was, they had online stuff. They had touch screens, uh, way before, you know, any of the modern game consoles came around. Right. Uh, and he also, my dad knew the guys who, uh, who developed the graphics, uh, computer that did the, uh, the death star training scene in the original star Wars. Oh, wow. Um, these guys, Tom DeFonte and Dan Sandine, they were actually involved with, uh, they were working on this Zgrass computer keyboard for the Bally Astrocade system. Mm-hmm. And they convinced him, oh, you got to get a Bally, you know, this keyboard's coming out, it's, your kids are going to be able to play with a computer. So that was the first game console that we had in the house. And then I actually I won a Atari 2600 with a copy of Space Invaders from a Captain Crunch contest. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know, it, it Is Captain was sort Crunch of... still around? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, <laughs> he's not giving away Atari Twenty Six Hundreds anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he just cuts the roof of your mouth when you eat. <laughs> yeah. 
But you know, I was re- I was reading all the video game magazines that were around at the time: Electronic Games, Electronic Fun, Joystick, which was an amazing magazine. Um, and I started going to the Consumer Electronics Show, which prior to E3 was where all the game companies would show off the the new home games. Uh, and I would, you know, my dad would go on the first day of the show uh, with his badge that he got as an employee of the university, and I would. He would let me take it on the second day, and I would go down and check out all the new Atari games, and ColecoVision games, and then Television games. Um, but then eventually, I I, uh, I lucked into this position as a freelance writer with the magazine, and I got to go to these trade shows as a, a legitimate member of the press, you know. Uh, and one of the first things I, one of the first events I got to go to was a arcade show. I can't remember if it was the Acme or the AMOA. But it was in downtown Chicago in 1990, and that's where I saw Pigskin, and that's where I saw, you know, I, I just immediately recognized that this, the art style of this game, the guy who did this game also did some of my other favorite games like Rampage, Xenophobe, Arch Rivals. And I talked to our contact at Midway, who was a guy named Roger Sharp, and I said, you know, who is this guy? Who's making these games? Because I could totally tell it's the same guy. He said, "Oh, that's Brian Cohen." And, you know, he put me in touch with Brian, and uh, I started talking to him. I don't know if we met in, in person at the time, but we talked over the phone about some of the stuff he was working on. And uh, you know, he kept in touch. He he would send me, even though I was I had moved to California and I was working on the magazine full time. You know, he would send me invitations to his annual Halloween parties that he had at his house, just because he knew I was a fan of his artwork, and he, these things would always be elaborately illustrated with you know pictures of monsters and things uh and we ended up i'm kind of getting ahead of myself but we ended up actually working together uh at his company game refuge for a couple years and we're kind of working on a secret project together right now oh wow the uh the and i mean just it was a wonderful kind of uh bit of happenstance i mean chris reached out and uh and and it was, I had, by the time I first met Chris, we'd already left Midway. He knew a lot of my games that I did back in the Midway, Valley Midway days. And after Williams bought us, we did a couple more. And then moved on to Game Refuge and did, started doing games for EA like General Chaos and stuff like that. And when Chris found out that we were doing a remake of Rampage, which became Rampage World Tour, he basically dressed me down. He says, okay, everybody else that's in the arcade industry has been hiding stuff everywhere from, you know, because you weren't supposed to put your names in it, so you'd hide your names and Easter eggs and putting stuff, and you guys never mess with that. And he says, okay, where I'm at now, you are going to have to put some hidden stuff in Rampage World Tour. <laughs> so... Basically, a lot of what Rampage World Tour is in terms of there's probably a dozen page document that I had to create to give to Chris to tell him about all the stuff we hid in Rampage World Tour. I mean, you can you can go to hell and visit Hitler. You can visit Area 51 and destroy flying saucers. There is a ton of stuff in that game. And it's all because Chris insisted that if we were going to revisit this, we had to make it something he could he could uh, just like sink just, my teeth into. 
Yeah, I, I mean, he, that, that was the kind really of coverage we did in the well magazine. In I, th- I think it had, it, it might have been, it was a fold-out. There was a fold-out in tri- Tips and Tricks. I it, yeah, it, it wasn't me covering any private parts or anything. It was <laughs> probably game-related, but... Yeah, we had a centerfold of the monsters. But I mean, yeah. but I mean, we had we had seen that this was the kind of thing that generates word of mouth about video games. You know, this is the the secrets and the and the cheat codes and the Easter eggs. That's the kind of stuff that gets kids to talk about video games when they're out on the in the schoolyard at recess. You know, how do I how do I get to that secret level? How do I play as that secret character? You know, we've seen so many games where you could extend the useful life of a video game by adding these sort of things. Yeah, I and agree. I have you to thank for that. For making me aware of it. And it's not really uh they don't do it quite as much anymore and it's surprising because they have so much more uh you know the memory capabilities of these games uh, allow for that. It it used to be that you know people would not hide a lot of things in games because you know, the cartridge size was only four megabits or whatever. So you wouldn't have room to put in secret levels and hidden characters and bonus weapons and different game modes. Um, but it, it's so but nice. Like, like, go ahead. No, but it's so nice now that they do because, like, like you said, like, you're right. Like, there's not as many Easter eggs or as little hidden things as there used to be back in the day. And, like, I just got done beating the new uh, Doom reboot uh, this weekend on my PS4. And one of the things I thought was so nifty is hidden in every level, there was a lever. And you went and you pulled the lever. And when you pulled the lever, a door would open and it would go to the old school original Doom level. So it would be like... You'd be fighting the monsters, but they had their original Doom skins, and like you would still be able to clip power ups and different things nice. that help you when you got out. But it was a nice nod and a wink to the original Doom, and it was hidden in the game because you're right. There are so many of these games now. They're so you start at point A, you go to point B, and then into point C. They're kind of very linear, linear, yeah. you know. And now that having all these little Easter eggs, I think it's just. It's so neat, and you're right. Back when I was a kid, I remember going to the arcade for like Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat Two, and you'd have a, a friggin' book with you, either a tips and tricks or something where it told you everybody's move and it told you how to get the secret characters and things. Because we didn't have the internet like we have now. Yeah, and one of yeah the- those guys, those guys at Midway really capitalized on that. You know, they realized oh yeah how how you could get people to go back to the arcade and check out a game like NBA jam or mortal Kombat because all of a sudden there was something, something somebody had discovered and you know, they would do ROM revisions to add new stuff to the game. So all of a sudden there would be new characters that, that you couldn't have found earlier. Yeah. And that was neat. Like NBA jam. It was like you messed around and you figured out, Oh, I can play as bill Clinton or, Oh, you know, there's a big head mode on here we never knew about. Like, there were so many little hidden things that would be, like, which is smart on their part because it got you to put more money in the machine because it got to the point where you're just trying to play the game to figure out these Easter eggs, which, as the arcade owner, that's what you want. You want to get more money, and if the machine's making more money, that means arcades are going to buy more of them. So, I mean, it, it works for everybody, but, yeah, I mean... I Absolutely. think Midway was great on doing that with the NBA jams, even the NFL blitz. I remember all the codes you had on there and the mortal combats were great. And you on could that. see, I, I've said this before, you know, people used to, 
I'd say, oh, I work at Tips and Tricks magazine, and people would say, oh, I don't, I don't buy that magazine because I don't like to cheat in games. You know, there's some kind of a, uh, like, like there's something impure about using a button code to unlock a sword or something. Yeah. And I would always point to to big head mode as, you know, this is not something that helps you play the game. It doesn't make the game any easier. It just makes it look different, and it it it's something something in the game that you didn't know was there. Like I said, it extends the useful life of a game and it gets people to put more quarters in the machine. Yeah. And from my end, you know, I was a dad, you know, I'm a little older than you guys. So I was a dad my kids are playing doom. And uh, of course around the office, we're creating our own doom levels and we're playing land games all afternoon, but my kids are playing dune and, and of course they want to know the codes. And so it's like, okay, IDKFA, which as we all know, as I explained to my kids, IDKFA means, and that gives you, gave you everything in terms of all the big weapons. Um, it didn't mean kick anything. It meant, I don't kill furry animals, is how I told my kid to learn everything. <laughs> so, you know, you had to work with what you, you know, you had to maybe adapt the acronyms a little bit for uh, family, family entertainment. But yeah, no, I, I, the, Chris was, and that's, that's why you know I'm so glad he could join us here today because I have a very limited view of the video game world. I made games, and sometimes they were arcade games, sometimes they were mobile games, sometimes they're casino games. But I'm always focused on the project and the player and maybe the earnings. And people will say, you know, well, what do you think of this, or what did you feel about this globally in the industry? And Chris, Chris was my go-to guy. Uh, in terms of when I wanted to know more about what was really going on in the industry, Chris was the guy I would go to. Which like, that was the great thing about working at the magazine. You know, you, you saw everything. Well, M- Mr. Colin, let me ask you this: Was uh, Chris got basically the guy you went to to kind of check the pulse of what was going on in gaming, and the guy you would go to and say, "Hey, you know, for my next big project, I need to know what the kids are." Are real, what are they doing right now? What's the thing they really like to kind of give you a kind of use them as a as to check the pulse or as a sonar, if you will, to kind of point you in the right direction? Um, actually, not to that extent. And and because I've been lucky enough that I've pretty much always done games based on two things. Somebody tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, I need a game for such and such. And two, I do something that. I want to see that I, as far as I know, nothing else out there is like. So trade shows, and while other people are looking around playing games, I'm just looking around to make sure there's nothing too close to something I'm already working on. But what, what I would go to Chris for would usually be about halfway through the development of a game, and then we would talk about what might he might know about that might be coming out that might be scary for me to you know say, okay, nope. What do you mean there's already a, a, a game that has a raider of tombs with a girl? Well, maybe I better rethink that one, you know. So I didn't, I didn't really, I've been lucky enough that I've kind of just made games for myself and then they've resonated with the public, but more in a, actually more in a friendship kind of way when I talked to Chris and then when we would talk about stuff, I would learn things. So it wasn't so much that I was seeking out Chris and saying, hey, let me pick your brain. It was Chris would be offering, hey, do you know about this? Have you heard about this? What do you think about this? And in that way, 
I learned from them about what was going on in the world. And it used to be really, I mean, we used to pride ourselves on, you know, knowing release dates and what was coming out and, and even in Japan, you know, what, what games were happening. And it was kind of scary how quickly that all evaporated when I no longer had a magazine to work on. You know, I, it was, it was, uh, it, it was something that occupied a lot of my time, you know, keeping tabs on the industry. And, uh, when I was no longer, you know, being paid to do that for a job, uh, I kind of stopped following everything and I've, I've sort of lost my grip on, on the pulse of the industry because it's, it's changed quite a bit even in the last five years. Well, Chris, uh, just to kind of throw my own personal antidote into that, I, I feel you because I worked in industry for 10 years and then once I stopped working in the industry, like I, I fell off for lack of a better word. Um, I just, I, cause it used to be, I knew every game's release date. I knew what the hot new thing was going to be. I knew games that were in development that might be two years out. I could tell you all about them. But then once I got out of the industry, I just, it was almost for me, maybe like a turnoff switch, like okay, I'm done with that part of my life. I'm going to take a break for a little while. And I would say maybe only within the last maybe five or six years. I mean, it was a little bit before we started doing the podcast because we've been doing that about two. But did I, like, really start getting, like, knee-deep back in the industry, like, where I was really keeping abreast of things again? Because for a while there, I was just like, I know what's hot that's coming out just because if it's really big, like, everybody and their brother knows. So I was like, oh... Gears of War 3 is coming out or Halo 3 or, you know, whatever the big, big marquee game is, the new Call of Duty, like, I would know that. But besides that, like, the little indie titles and the little things that might kind of fly under the radar, I had no clue because I was just so knee-deep in it before. I was just like, I don't care <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. We used to try to really favor those underdog games. You know, we would... We had to put games like, uh, you know, Super Mario stuff on the cover in order to sell magazines, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. But we always, we were really proud of the fact that we would sort of champion these lesser known games that had a lot of good content in them and, and deserved the attention. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them were arcade games. We did a lot of arcade coverage, especially in the 90s, uh, when it was difficult to do so. You know, it was a, it was a pain in the ass to get screenshots of those games. I, uh, I, uh, you know, didn't always have access to the people who made them, uh, if they were done overseas, but you know, that there were so many, the fact that you had to put money into a machine to play a video game was made it a lot more prohibitive in terms of the information you could get out of it. You know, we, and I was, I was saying I had to ask Roger you know, who made pigskin, even though Brian had been putting his game in the attract mode of several games previous to that and the reason i never saw it was because you'd go in the arcade and somebody was always playing rampage you know somebody was always playing arch rivals you didn't see the attract mode because you didn't have a chance that's a good thing that's a good thing not for yeah. you not for you but well and the thing too with arcade with arcades that a lot of people again dating ourselves here chris but i mean we didn't have fraps we didn't have Nobody was using a common system or an engine. Everything that we worked on for Midway or Williams or uh, or Team Play or anybody I've done arcade games for, 
they've all got proprietary hardware. So we can't instantly, there are no support tools like, okay, let's grab screenshots and shoot these off to Chris in this file format. Back then, I mean, you know, when I started out, they were seven and a half inch floppies and a, and a portable hard drive was the size of a dishwasher. So, and that, that was 40 whole megabytes back then. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there was not a commonality. There was, wasn't an easy way to get stuff. Chris had asked me for screenshots and I'd take them with my 35 millimeter camera. And then I'd have that horrible banding across the screen. Cause you know, it looked like crap. Uh, but we got there. We got there in the end. Well, I think that's yeah. so, what's so impressive now, looking back at Tips and Tricks magazine, because like when you're a kid, you don't understand like how how many hurdles you guys have to jump through. But now that we're kind of in an industry right now, me and Johnny, with where we review games and we talk about games and stuff, like if it's a console release, that's easy. I just go buy it. We take it home. We play it. And we figure it out, and we let our listeners know, or we review it, or whatever. But if it's an arcade game, like I've got to go and pump quarters into it and figure it out, or especially with arcades now, I got to find out where it is to even get to it to try and talk about it. And uh, looking back, you guys did a lot with a little when it came to the arcade games, because you had a lot of arcade game stuff in your magazine, and it, it probably was kind of a pain in the took us if you will, to kind of get all that done. It really was. We had a, there was an arcade distributor in LA named C.A. Robinson, and they would let us come in and play the games that they had on the show floor that, you know, had just come in and they were getting ready to distribute. And somebody built us this sort of Frankenstein box that would let us uh, tap into the RGB signal coming out of the monitor with little uh, alligator clips uh, just to be able to feed that signal into a, our little capture board uh, and we were never really happy with the quality but you know we had stuff that we wanted to show off we had no other way to get those screenshots and you know we would kneel down uh, on the floor of this uh, in the back room of this arcade distributor and hook up those those little alligators and, and do the best we could but also you got to think from their point of view that's got to be really great for them because it's like if their game is getting in Tips and Tricks magazine, that means kids are going to know about it. Kids are going to know the cheat codes. Kids are going to want to play it. So for them, I'm sure they're like, yes, let me do every single thing I can to make sure that it gets in the magazine so kids will want to play it and know about it. I hope yes. so, but there's, there's also a delicate balance where you don't want, you know, they don't want everybody to know all the secrets in the games, you know. There was a... There was actually a, a secret in NBA Jam that they they asked us not to reveal because it was uh, it allowed you to play the game for free for a little while, <laughs> um, and I don't think we ever talked about it. But they fixed it in, in a subsequent ROM revision anyway. So we call that a bug. We call that a bug where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things too that I found, especially in the early days, was I was always surprised. And again, maybe it's things at the corporate level. Um, whenever I was contacted by guys like Chris, I would I'd go out of my way. I'd bend over backwards to provide everything and anything I could for whatever game I was working on and they were asking about at the time. And at, as often as not, um, I was told that most times they tried uh, that uh, writers tried to reach out to developers 
they'd get the cold shoulder, either at the corporate level or some middle management level. It's like they get so far and that's, you know, as far as they wanted to, to go. Fortunately, my company, when I was working for Midway in the early days, we were a small enough group that people came directly to me so I could answer. And even as, you know, once we formed our own company, we we're a small enough company, stuff would get directly to me and I would answer. But my question for you, Chris, is now, did you have trouble with corporations or, uh, you know, did you ever run into that? I mean, like I said, that, oh, yeah. that was kind yeah, of the we were not, I got. We were not encouraged to talk directly to, to, to the people who worked on the games. You know, there were uh, most of the big companies had public relations departments that tried to control the flow of information out of the company. And they didn't want us to, uh, you know, speak to the developers and get all that kind of information without them knowing who had it. Because they were, you know, obviously they were trying to be fair and distribute the information equally to the various magazines. But, you know, we are, I, the company I worked for was actually uh, Larry Flint Publications. And uh, we had a lot of copies of Hustler magazine laying around the office. And a lot of game developers were happy to take them off of our hands. Uh, in exchange for cheat codes and secrets like that. Wait a minute! You never offered me any hustlers. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want a backlog. Well, that was one of the funny things actually today, uh, Chris. Before we take a quick break, one of the funny things I ran into when I did my research on you today was finding out that Tips and Tricks magazine was a, a Larry Flint publication. Because I'm like. Holy shit, the, this magazine I'm reading as a kid that my mom would gladly buy for me when we went to, you know, Publix or the Piggly Wiggly or wherever, like, it was also the same, you know, uh, well, it, it's not like you guys published it, but your publishing house also did all these dirty magazines that my mother would not have let me got within six miles of, you know, so I, I yeah. thought that was kind of one of those neat little Easter eggs, I guess, since that's kind of been the word of the night. Uh, that oh my god like the same guy that does hustler does you know this magazine which i thought was interesting it is funny and it you know it was a professional company that had a lot of magazines for both audiences oh yeah 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 right. i mean i'm sure they had other mainstream books that were not as risque that was on the list but when i when i looked it up and i saw i was like larry flint publications i'm like Larry Flint, that name sounds really familiar. And then it clicked, and I'm like, no way. And then I, I went down yeah. a little rabbit hole and looked, and I'm like, holy shit, the same people that made Hustler made tips and tricks. Yeah, in fact, when I uh, when I first started writing for video games and computer entertainment, his name was not in the magazine. Uh, I think it just said LFP Inc. And the, the guy who found one of the founders of the magazine was a guy named Lee Pappas, and everybody just assumed that those were his initials. Uh, and then I wrote my first article as a freelancer and I got my first paycheck and I looked at the signature on it and I thought, wow, I had no idea who I was working for. Now, Chris, Chris, is it true that in lieu of raises, they would do photo shoots in your office on your desk? No, no, okay. no photo shoots in my office except for that one time. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce. This episode of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce is brought to you by... 
Free Play Florida. Guys, you do not want to miss it. It is one of the greatest conventions going on today. And it's all about retro gaming, which is something here at the Happy Hour with Johnny Deuce. We absolutely love and adore. They've got all your retro game favorites from classic consoles to also your favorite classic arcade cabinets. And don't forget that the Happy Happy Hour Hour with Johnny and Deuce is the official podcast. And, of course, your boy Deuce is the voice of Free Play Florida. You don't want to miss it. Johnny, when is Free Play Florida? It's going to be November 11th to the 13th, 2016 at the beautiful Doubletree Hotel in Orlando, Florida. Johnny, who all is going to be there? We've got the amazing CEO and spokesperson for Sega, Nathan Barnett, as well as video game historian Walter Day, and creator of some of the biggest titles, Rampage, Xenophobe, Disc of Tron, Satan's Hollow, Star Trek Voyager, and many more, Mr. Brian Colon. Pinball designers Gary Stern and Jersey Jack will be there on display with their beautiful pinball machines. Player of the Century and star of King of Kong, Billy D. Mitchell, and world record holders Richie Knuckles and Todd Rogers will be there on display. And speaking of world record holders, there's going to be multiple world record attempts going on that weekend on a ton of different games. You don't want to miss it. You want to be there at the Doubletree by Hilton in Orlando. November 11th to the 13th. And don't forget to tell them that the Happy Happy Hour Hour with Johnny and Deuce sent you. This episode of the Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce is brought to you by RetroGameTreasure.com. Get real retro games for the old school consoles you love delivered to your door every month. They have consoles like the NES, Super Nintendo, Genesis, PlayStation 1, Game Boy, Game Boy Advanced, and more. Tell them the type of games you like and what games you already own so you don't get duplicates. You even get a wish list. It's not a rental service. And best yet, you keep the games. Use promo code HAPPYHOUR and save $2 off your first month. Learn more at RetroGameTreasure.com. And don't forget to tell them that the Happy Happy Hour with Johnny and Deuce sent you. And we're back with the happy hour with Johnny and Deuce. Of course, I'm Johnny. I'm a main man, Deuce. What's going on, brother? We have the awesome Brian Colon and the amazing guy with the amazing do, the amazing hair in the industry. I'd say the the best hair in the business, Chris Bieniek. So, uh, Tips and Tricks uh, magazine. So, there you go. Welcome. Not anymore, man. <laughs> we were kind of talking about that off the break. How awesome your your shot is that you have your promo shot. You have. Uh, I guess this is from the 90s or what? When was this taken, this picture? Uh, it was – the picture's from 94. I was actually uh, in, in a rare moment wearing a suit on my way to the to the uh, Hustler 20th anniversary party. <laughs> that is wild because uh, – how would you describe his haircut in this picture? Because it's, it's way better than a mullet. Like that's oh, like – it's, it's mullet for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's very like it's a, almost Bon Jovi esque. It is of how long it is. Slippery but it's, one way, yeah, Bon yeah, Jovi. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, jo- Bon Jovi, the Good Years. The yeah, good yeah, years, yeah, yeah. It's it's a party in the front and the back. So yes, I, that's yes. what I like about it. Yeah, <laughs> that pretty much sums Chris up. Yeah, party, party in, the, in front the front and the back. <laughs> yeah, tips in the front, tricks in the back. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, uh, you and I, we were talking uh, in between the break, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were because 
we all we you know anything that you were into back in like the 80s and 90s when you wanted to have your source for knowledge you didn't have the internet so you went to magazines like even Deuce and I Deuce and I are huge fans of professional wrestling huge and so like we'd have to go and get you know uh, pro wrestling insider and all that stuff like we we'd have to be able to find out what's going on if we weren't able to watch it on television we'd go and get the magazines and you know same thing with PC magazines and all that stuff like you have to go in and and read everything and uh, I'm a guitar player so I would get like the you know the guitar player magazines and guitar world and all that and like i'd look at the guitar tabs in there and everything and you know magazines were such a big source of knowledge but you also had competing magazines there that there that were also doing different things as well uh and i wanted to get your thoughts on you know your thoughts on the magazine gaming industry if you will uh during your run uh tips and tricks i mean it was there was certainly a time when, when, you know, people relied on us for that information and we tried to be fair and and the way we covered the industry. Uh, but there was a lot of instances where we would be accused of bias just because of the way, uh, the industry was shaken out, you know, like when the PlayStation started to dominate the Saturn, Saturn fans would write us letters and they're like, you know, how come you're not covering as many Saturn games as you're covering PlayStation games? And would point at the point at the release list and say, you know, because there are 20 new PlayStation games this month and only four for the Saturn. You know, it was just a reflection of what was going on in the industry. Um, but we, I've said this before, I don't think there were enough talented people to staff all of the magazines that existed, you know, and not to disparage anybody specifically, but you know, it, it takes a special balance of, you know, knowledge of the history of the industry, uh, ability to write in, in a, in a easily digestible, I, I write much better than I speak, as you could probably tell. Uh, and to, to, you know, have the, the, the ability to get along with other people in the industry and to make those, make those connections with publishers, developers, you know, whoever else you're going to run into at a trade show. It was, it was not, uh, there was a lot of people working on video game magazines who I don't necessarily think were qualified to do that, in, including some of our own, you know, there were some, there were some people hired to work on, on video games magazine, uh, after the transition from video games and computer entertainment, when they tried to make it more like a game pro type of magazine mm-hmm. that were like, you know, drinking buddies of, of people who were already on the staff. What well, I'll drink to that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because uh, Brian mentioned earlier about screenshots. Well, back in the day, especially during the, the NES era, like the NES, like you literally had to take screenshots. Like it was actual with your camera, you would take a screenshot of the, uh, of the television, um, and obviously there was some filters and stuff you could go through to make it look better. But like that's what screenshots. Like kids now, I have no idea what that means. They think of screenshot as like on their computer. You know, you can hit the the screen screen cap or whatever, and you can get your image or whatever, or your snipping tool. You know, uh, and all that. But yeah. now it's like 
you literally had to take screenshots, and some things weren't provided. I remember a, a story uh, back when um, Ocarina of Time came out. I remember people were like, oh, what is this? This this new Zelda. I don't know what this is. And and, he, and Nintendo wasn't giving out information, a lot of information on it. So it wasn't like, and you'd see like little, little, little really like small bite-sized little images. And people were like, you go into the magazine, you're like, I can't tell what this is. Because <laughs> it was all dependent yeah. on what you got from the publisher or the developer. And like that, for me, it was interesting to kind of like, go through and like buy four or five different magazines because I would try to like, all right, this is what this magazine's saying about this game. This is what this magazine, and then put all the pieces together because it was, it was, it was fun to kind of explore in that, in that route. But I, yeah, for those at home, we, we that, tried to, we tried to take our own screens. If it was a game that we were reviewing and then we actually had a copy in the office, sure. you know, we would take our own screenshots and do the best job we could with them. But I can remember the first game we ever took a, digital screenshot of in other words you know a capture on a computer was Star Fox for the Super NES oh nice prior to that all of the console game screenshots in video games and computer entertainment magazine were done by feeding the image from the console into this uh, VCR sized device called a Sony video printer uh, and it had to be loaded up with this special it was sort of like a Polaroid film and you had to buy uh, these ink ribbons that lasted for about 30, 30 shots. But at the time, and this is you know early 90s, the combined cost of the paper and the ink to make a screenshot was about a dollar. So like every t- every time you wanted to take a screenshot for the magazine, it cost about a dollar. Wow. And and uh, you know you didn't you didn't spend a lot of time taking pictures that you didn't that you weren't eventually going to use because it was expensive. And when you ran out of that stuff, we had to go to this crazy camera store on sunset Boulevard to buy cases of this stuff. I mean, it was, it was really much more difficult than it, than it was in the later years when we were doing desktop publishing. And I should also mention that prior to my time on video games, like when that magazine first started, uh, you know, they didn't do, they didn't lay out these magazines on computer screens. It was done you know, there were people with giant uh, tables cutting out paragraphs of text with X-Acto knives to, to make this film that would be sent to the printer. It was, it was stone knives and bearskins, you know? Well, no, and, and I think that that point leads me to a, a point I was going to make, just to kind of double back to what you were saying. To me, it felt like when we had, like, the, the NES era, the Super Nintendo era, the Sega era, Sega Genesis, I mean... Uh, it was you guys. I think there was Nintendo Power, of course. And I want to say it was Game Informer, and that was like the top three, because that's the ones I always remembered seeing when we went to the like the Piggly Wiggly or Publix or wherever. But then once it got to the PlayStation One era, which might have been when you guys were getting into the digital age, where you could do more with your editing, is when it just felt like it was a bukkake of game magazines. Like there was like. 30 different video game magazines and I'm like holy hell last week there were three and now there's like you know 30 different video game magazines now yeah that was a lot of uh, specialization going on you know once once a console got popular enough you could do a magazine dedicated only to the PlayStation or to the Dreamcast for example you know yeah and, and the- some people some people like that but then you're you're hanging your your future kind of hinges on the success of that console as a, as an ongoing entity, you know? 
Well, and also they tried so, to other companies tried to entice you to buy their magazine because the U.S. official PlayStation magazine is very uh, uh, prominent for having a demo disc in their magazine. You pay extra, obviously, for that magazine, but you get a little demo right. disc that had like 10, 10 demos on it, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got, I'll never forget the first time I played Metal Gear Solid. Like, I blew my mind. I was like, oh my god, this is crazy, you know. And also, well, you get you. Power Rapper, the rapper, and all that stuff as well. But like it was people loved those demo discs, and and you know our the higher ups at, at LFP were constantly asking us, you know, what would it take to get a demo disc bundled with the magazine, or or even just a, a CD ROM with some videos on it. I mean, it was just it was a lot of extra work that we didn't have the staff to produce, but they obviously uh, had an effect on the sales of those magazines because they were constantly talking to us about it. And now. I mean, coming full circle, almost every adult magazine has the has the discs uh, shoved into them now. But they're they're not they're not interactive. Well, they're interactive in a way. Not... <laughs> you seem to know all about this, Brian. But I but I digress. But no, I've I mean, heard. It, I've heard. But it was crazy because you're right. Like for a while there it was just the magazine and then like Nintendo Power because I remember it was a big deal when they started making issues where it was like a walkthrough yeah, like of the, the game. Yeah, like Super Mario Brothers 3 was Oh, very that popular. was huge. And that then was... the Ninja Gaiden 2 and I think they did one for like one of the Legend of Zelda's. Of the past. But yeah, and that was huge. Link's Awakening and yeah, that one, I and I think that's probably what actually kicked off the whole walkthrough guide thing was those magazines. But it was easier back then because you literally like you had like a point A to point B. Like when you look at Castlevania and Mario, like you, you had a parallaxing background, so to speak. So you could yeah. go through and go through the whole thing. And now it's like games. Now you're in a 3D space. There is no set way you can go. I mean, yeah, there's a linear way, but it's very hard to capture. Like you, you that's why video is more popular towards the end. You know, the yeah. Instead of just taking photos, photos didn't do as much, and that's why like companies like Game Trailers got really popular because yeah. you know, it was like, all right, we got this awesome, exclusive Game Trailers, uh, you know, footage or whatever and stuff like that. So the industry would definitely change during the the yeah. Xbox 360, I would say. Yeah. That era. Because um, now I, when I go to like when I actually walk down a magazine rack, like. I can't tell you the last time I saw a video game magazine, to be quite honest with you. Like, the last time I've walked through, like, a, a Winn-Dixie or a Publix or something now, and, you know, because I will I'll walk through and I'll be like, oh, well, there's a new WWE magazine and there's a new Men's Health well, and Fitness. They would do, I think a lot of the, men, either Men's Health or even Playboy, I think, had, like, a video game section in there. Like, they'd have, like, these... Uh, well, I know Maxim. Maxim like, did, too. Because that was well. when That's I was true. in college. Yeah. Like, Maxim got yeah. really big, and I swear to God, every dorm room I went in in college had a copy of Maxim. And there was like the other one. There was like a another kind of Maxim knockoff. Not GQ or anything. No, no. no. It was more like the Maxim. Esquire. No. no. But uh, but yeah, they all had video game sections because I was like, oh wow, like this, you know, n not adult magazine, but this men's magazine would have. But now even like GQ and Esquire have video game sections, and even Entertainment Weekly has video game sections right. in the magazine now, which is right. kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing, we started to see a lot more of that as the game started to get more mature and they got the rating system in place. And uh, what ended up happening is that when you have these really big hits like Grand Theft Auto uh, that are aimed at a mature audience, that's where the advertising dollars are coming from. So, you know, if you want to get ads in your magazine from the big publishers with the big AAA titles, 
your magazine has to be aimed at that kind of an audience. And we never really were comfortable with that. I mean, we, we tried to appease the, the powers that be by making the magazine look a little bit more mature on the cover, um, sort of in the mid two thousands, but it really was in my mind, in my mind, it was always more aimed at kids because kids are just more enthusiastic about video games, you know? I agree with that. And then also you start getting to the level where it's almost like a pay-for-play level, like where it's like, okay, well, if you don't have a blurb about our new Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto, just using those names, not saying that those games or companies ever did this, but like, hey, if you want us to buy ads in your magazine, you're going to need to have some sort of blurb or write-up about our game. And I definitely, as things have progressed, I, I feel that way when I read magazines now where sometimes I'm very leery about what their write-up is on a game depending on if they had that game's an advertisement for that game in their magazine because I'm like oh well I just saw and I'm just using these names as an example we're saying allegedly because I can't say that this is the case just allegedly let's say we'll use Grand Theft Auto as our example like if I see an ad in the magazine like a full page for the new Grand Theft Auto and then I get five pages later and it's like oh yeah Grand Theft Auto's great Grand Theft Auto's a you know an A plus or whatever I'm like okay, well, is there a correlation between we bought the ad space and now I just gave you an A-plus on the game or, like, I gave you a 8.5 out of 10 or something and I also saw a big full-page ad for the game? Like, it makes me a little leery. Man, that's it good. should. This is America. And so <laughs> you know how it works. I mean, you should never believe anything you read uh, right off the – I mean, you know, Chris, you're a writer. You know better than anybody. Um the the best way to hear about a game is from someone you know and trust. Right. I trust Chris, yeah. so you can believe everything he said. But uh, I never gave him a Corvette to write anything good about. <laughs> well, no, and I Go and I actually was lucky enough to get out of the reviewing game fairly early. You know, I started when I started writing about video games. I was doing reviews exclusively, but uh, when when tips and tricks took off, we sort of made that, uh, uh, that was sort of our little, that's how we distinguished ourselves from the other magazines. You know, we don't do reviews. We, we're not here to tell you if a game is good or not. We're here to tell you what you can do with the game after you've already bought it. Well, it's, which as it turned out was not a real positive thing in terms of getting ad dollars and, and long-term survival. But you know, we made it for 15 years. I think that's I was gonna say 15 years is a good shit. Fifteen years is a good run, but and I should also add that we were really limping along at the end. There, we, we when Tips and Tricks was discontinued, and we continued to do the spinoff magazine, the Tips and Tricks Codebook, for another four years after that. Uh, you know, there were issues with no ads in them whatsoever. We had a couple of public service announcements for the ESRB, and you know, called it a day. We were just happy to. to get whatever we could get from newsstand dollars you know but then also chris that was why i when i had a couple extra bucks why well, i always bought you guys magazine because i didn't really want the reviews at that point like i already knew if i was going to buy a game or not what i wanted to know is like what's the unlimited ammo code where can i unlock these special characters like i wanted to know what i could do with the game when i got it home not so much a review because it was already at my house and then also 
at least with you guys, and credit to you, Chris, I never felt led astray because I never felt like somebody was pointing me to spend my money anywhere but other than the magazine. It's like you were telling me what to do with the game when I got it home, not like, hey, go out and buy this game. It's the new, latest, greatest, the hip, the now, the wow. It was like, no, this is how you unlock the God mode or this is how you unlock the special character or whatever, which is a big kudos to you guys. Well, there used to be much more of a need for that sort of information. You know, when video game magazines first appeared uh, in the early 80s, you had no way to to find out if a game was good or not. You, you didn't even know if a game would work on your console or, or if it was available for your console. You know, that, that sort of information was much harder to come by. And if you were a kid who was only going to get a, a game for your birthday and for Christmas, you know, maybe a couple of times a year, you didn't have a lot of money to spend testing out these games. And sure. if your friend didn't own a copy of it, you were going to get, you know, pitfall or whatever and, and be happy with it. But, uh, as, as the internet started to, you know, get bigger and as demos started to become available, there were so many more ways for you to get your hands on a game and see it for yourself and test it out beforehand. Um, I don't, I don't think you needed somebody to tell you whether a game was good or not anymore because you could see it for yourself. And we were kind of, we were really happy to not be part of that rad race because we were not constantly being pressured by publishers to, to give a game a better score. Uh, you know, we thought that, sh you know, showing six pages of screenshots and information about a game was uh, a much better uh, way to expose people to it than you know, to give it a couple of screenshots and somebody's sarcastic commentary about how it sucks and move on to the next one, you know? Chris, would you agree that there was a certain um, innocence about the way all of us approached games back in those days? I mean, we were a little older, so, I mean, we weren't kids, but I, I, I okay, I'm going to shut up. Would you agree? I would totally agree. I mean, when I look back at the stuff that I wrote early on, you know, games that I wrote about and what I said about them, I was really trying to imitate the house style of the magazine that, that took me on. But, you know, you, you, the terminology you used and the things you said, you know, there was a lot of describing the features of the game, you know, like this game has characters that you can talk to. And it was, it was all so new and, and, you know, people needed to be educated about that stuff. There was there was not this sort of rigid categorization of different genres and uh, all these expectations and all these sequels. You know, it was uh, almost every game was something new and different and, and exciting, and you could really you could really say a lot about it. You know, there was a lot of things to say about video games. Especially like uh, RPGs, for example, because almost like every RPG had its own battle system, you know, active time battle and all that stuff. Like you had different mechanics that you would use, and so like that would kind of change. And then when you'd have like quick time events, because the first time you had to describe what a quick time event was, I meant that was interesting as well. So like there's a lot of different things that happened in the industry that people were experimenting with. So, and you had on rails. The first time I played like an on rail shooter at home on a console was like. Like it was hard to explain <laughs> to someone. Like you know how you're you're playing House of the Dead and all that, but like you're, yeah, it's like an on. They call it an on rail. I mean, I don't know who coined that phrase, on rail shooter, but uh, it was just like, hey, you know, they're doing it at home now, and you're like, what? I don't. 
that's only an arcade experience. And I think that was what's so interesting about the console market, home console market, was they were trying to encapsulate that feeling that you got. Most of the time, arcades still want it out. Like, let's be honest. The arcade is where to go when it was come, you know, when some of these games came out. But then you had some, you know, games that that translated pretty well, like uh, Pac-Man and different things like that. Donkey Kong '94 is another infamous title uh, uh, that came out, and so like you had different things that this kind of you experimented with and you talked about earlier about screenshots and, and talking about, you know, where that's the most important thing because for us, it's like now you live in the society of the YouTube era where it's like, you know, 30 second clips sold you, sell you on something, you know, or supposed to sell the industry on things back in the day. You had more time. Like when, when you were a kid and you're walking around and you were curious about what you're going to buy for your birthday, especially like Atari fooled you. Cause like Atari had this amazing, awesome, like hand painted art on the front. You're like, Oh my God, this is going to be amazing. And golden ax and all that. It's going to be just gorgeous. And then, and then you actually look in the back and you're like, Oh, you know, and sometimes they didn't even really have any screenshots. They had like really small squares. You know, back in the in the early '80s, a lot of those screenshots were hand drawn. You know, they would have an artist sit down with construction paper or whatever and and create a, a facsimile of the video game uh, screen because they had no way to take a screenshot that was that was decent. There were some good uh, ways to capture images with a with a decent camera. And I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite magazines was called Joystick. They did a lot of arcade coverage. And, uh, you know, they would go down to the arcade with a camera with a hood on it or whatever and, you know, capture these really nice 35 millimeter images of video game screens. You know, Zaxxon, Donkey Kong, where you could, you could see all the pixels glowing and stuff. And they, they really played that up. It was, it was very cool. I used to, I used to uh, get on the hardware guys at Midway in the early days because I wanted stuff that I could take home, you know, and, and for my own memories. And, and it was like, you know, you, there's gotta be a way for us to s- capture a screenshot. And it's like, yeah, that's not, that's not on the, it's not in the budget. It's not something we've been asked to do by our boss. So just pull out your 35 and take a picture of the screen. That's all we can do for you. But that was in the mid eighties still. Well, yeah. speaking things that aren't in the budget, and that is any more time with the two of you guys. But the good news is for our fans, this is just part one. Part two is going to be coming up later in the week, so listen out for it. So, Johnny, how can they find us on the Internet? They can find us on the Internet, uh, HH Podcast Show on the Twitter machine, as well as uh, HH Podcast Show at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to soundcloud.com forward slash happy hour podcast show. And then, of course, uh, you guys want to real quick mention how they can find you guys on the internet? I know Game Refuge Inc. was one, right, for, for Brian? Uh, www.gamerefuge.com is uh, our our company website. I'm uh, and, and Facebook page, Game Refuge. Um, personally, I'm Brian F. Colon on Twitter. And uh, Chris, where are you? I I have a website that I haven't updated in quite a while, but it's called uh, www.videogameephemera.com, and there are hyphens after video and after game, um, where I've shown off scans of weird old trade show flyers and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, I believe, as VG Ephemera. Awesome. Uh, but if I love the fact that. Chris calls uh, everything he's been doing for the last 
20 some years as ephemera, which of course means transitory or fleeting. However, we're here still talking about it. And recently in something, when I was asked about something about the old days, it, I'm, I called it uh, persistent ephemera because which even though it's an oxymoron wow, i like that. chris i got that from you chris because yeah <laughs> it's uh yeah we're still talking about it but it's it's fleeting stuff well speaking of not fleeting <laughs> is the interview with you two we're gonna have part two very very soon but of course when you talk about the happy hour with johnny and deuce on the twitter machine there's not one there's not two but there are three hashtags Hashtag Happy, Happy Hour, Hour podcast. podcast. Hashtag HH Podcast Show. And hashtag Deuces Deuce is on, on the, the loose. loose. Later. See ya.